Good morning, everybody. You made it, uh, and on time. Thank you, Jody. Um, that's, that's good. Good work. You know, as I was thinking about this uh, uh, daylight savings scenario, I thought about the Princess Bride, like you do, right? And, uh, and how Wesley was strapped to that table in the pit of despair, and the guy was like, I just sucked one year of your life away. You know? Well, you just had a, an hour of your life sucked away. How does that feel? Um, on the positive side, that clock on your wall is finally right again, you know? So, so that's, that's the good news. And let's see if you get this joke. But part of the... <clears throat> Maybe the downside, though, is that now, for weeks, some of you are going to be writing an hour ago on your checks. And so it'll take some time to... You know, yeah. It didn't work last service either. That was its last chance. 11.30, no check joke. Uh, I missed you guys last week. Hillary and I and Jack were in Arizona. We had a little family reunion. Uh, so we drove across the desert, uh, which is always a treat with a one-year-old. And, um, and we were there, so we missed you. We, we had a good time with my family, but uh, glad that Kyle could be here and that you guys did your thing. And it's just good to be back with you. And we're starting a new series that we are calling How to Start a Revolution, How to Start a Revolution. Now, we are going back to the book of Luke. You may recall, if you've been here for a few months, that to end the year last year, we looked at Luke chapters 1 and 2, and Luke chapter 2 led us right into Christmas, and then we did the Beautiful Mess series, and now we're going to look at Luke 3, back in the mix. Uh, But under this idea of how to start a revolution, we're looking at the, the beginnings of the ministry of Jesus. And my hope is, my prayer is for you, that some of you would begin to see this ministry of Jesus in a new way. Uh, that, that those of you who are just kind of checking God out, or maybe you went to church back in the day and now you're trying to get back into it or wondering or thinking, or maybe you've never gone to church and you're just experiencing this for the first time, I, it's our hope and our prayer that you would see who this Jesus really is is. So to start in Luke chapter 3, I just want to read this, these few verses to you all at once, and then we'll take them apart from there. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysianitis, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Will you pray with me briefly? God, I just ask that you would speak to us now. I ask that you would illuminate your word, that when we walk out of here, each of us would feel like we met with you, 
and you showed us something about what you have put in us, what you desire for us, and how we can know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I studied those few verses this past week, I felt like God illuminated for me a little pathway. So you'll see it on your strange-looking outline that there is this path that I feel like that we're going to go on in these next few minutes together. It's this little journey that we're going to take through just these six verses. And here's my hope. My hope is that one or two ideas will stick to you, that they will stand out to you, That they will stick with you as you leave here and that they'll haunt you at least all week. As God just says, this is for you. This is what I want you to hear. And so we'll start with the first verse and a half. It's a little bit uh, historical, so stay with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea and Herod, Tetrarch, Galilee, Brother Philip, those two places... Uh, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, right in the priesthood. So here's, here's what we're saying here. The, the, these are the famous ones. These are the people that were known in that era. Uh, Tiberius Caesar was the ruler, the emperor of Rome. So he's, Rome is just this powerhouse, just taking territory, and they're running things all over the known world at the time. And so this guy is the Caesar, the emperor, the king overseeing all of that. When Matthew and Luke, in their gospel accounts, refer to the tribute penny, they're literally talking about a silver coin with this guy's profile on it. They were changing coins and changing money, and it had Tiberius Caesar's mug on the coin. That's who Luke, in this account, is referencing to give you context. Then he says Pontius Pilate. Ultimately, Pontius Pilate was the governor of a province, Judea. So you have Rome that's occupying all kinds of territory. You have a province, which is like a country, where Pontius Pilate is the governor Pontius Pilate is the one, if you uh, need to like brush up on your Easter knowledge before we kind of creep up in there in these next 35 days, Pontius Pilate is the one who washed his hands and said, I don't see anything wrong with this Jesus, but you can go ahead and kill him. I just don't want the blood on my hands. He's that governor. And then Tetrarch, just as a term, it means to rule a quarter. So the province was split into quarters. Pontius Pilate oversees the province, and then he had these kind of uh, tetrarchs that oversaw each quarter. Two of them were Herod and Philip. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. You'll see his name again uh, as you get toward the Easter story because Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod saying, he did most of his ministry in your quarter In your little region, you deal with him. Herod sent him back saying, oh no, I think this is a larger kind of of state matter. You You should probably handle this. And so that's Herod. His father is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is also the father of Philip, but they have a different mom. Philip's mom was Cleopatra of Jerusalem. But it's also thought that she might have been the very same Cleopatra that is famous in Egypt. Same time frame. And they know that Cleopatra knew Herod the Great, and so maybe... They did that thing and had Philip. And so this is the history, I mean, in your history books, this is, how, this is how it plays out. And then you got the high priest, which are the, the top dogs of the Jewish faith. And Rome at this time, because they were occupying, probably appointed them, which was a weird deal for the Jews. But, the, but, but here's the point. They're the famous ones. They're the loud voices. 
They're the ones that everybody knows their name. They're the ones with their face on coins and magazines and Huffington Post and songs are written about them. They're the ones that everyone knows. They're the loudest voices in the culture. And when Luke was writing about that back then, he might have had in his mind, certainly I'll reference these people because everyone will know these people. These are the people that people will be talking about in the future. And yet the reality is for us today, they take up a verse and a half in the story of Jesus. They're placeholders. They're just context. And what we're talking about 2,000 years later is the beginning of a revolution started by Jesus, sparked by this strange guy that we'll see here, John the Baptist. So it's in that time, the Bible says, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah. Now, if you remember uh, from Luke chapter, the end of chapter one, it's, it, we were talking about how Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed and prayed and prayed for months, years, even decades to become pregnant, and they were never able to have kids. So they felt like, maybe some of you have been there, where you felt like God doesn't hear our prayers, or he doesn't care, or he's just so far away and removed from my little life, he's doing bigger things or different things, and So even though they were good people, they went through years of feeling like maybe there was something wrong with them or that God just wasn't interested in what they were asking for, what they so desperately wanted. They were were an unlikely couple then that in their seasoned life, when they were like grandparent age, an angel comes and says, you're going to have a kid. And that kid is John. Not, not, not John the Tetrarch, not John the Governor, not John the Caesar, just John the Baptist, because he baptized people. He was just John. And yet the word of the Lord came to John, just, just, just this guy. When all the other guys were famous, when their voices were really, really loud, John hears from God. And look at where he hears from God. The Bible says the next few verses, there was in the wilderness. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Wilderness is known for being empty. Last week, uh, we, Hillary and I and baby Jack, drove across the desert, took us about seven hours to get to my parents' house in Phoenix, Arizona. When you're driving across the desert, you get a little glimpse of what the wilderness is. And and in this day, there's no 10 freeway, there's no rest stops, there's not even a Blythe that you can get some gas and some chips, you know? It's just empty. It's just it's just why would anyone be out here? It's hot. It's it's really difficult the terrain to get around. There's no path, there's no road. It's just empty. Wilderness was synonymous with chaos. There's no order here. No one has brought structure to this place. It's wild. It's crazy. It seems like it's purposeless. The word of the Lord appears to John in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting, too, to me, that in the very beginning of the story, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that there was nothingness 
And a voice came from God and spoke, and then there was something. That there was chaos, and God's voice spoke, and then there was order. That where there wasn't, then there was. And so God began the creating process with his voice. And here we see there is this new creation thing that's beginning, and it begins with a voice, a word of God in the wilderness. In the story of God's people, the Israelites, when they were freed from Egypt and led into the promised land, they went through a wilderness for 40 years to get there. I mean, imagine the pain and the torment and thinking, are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to be there? God, do you hear our prayers? It's worth, we're hungry. We're thirsty out here. And for not just days, years, they are in a wilderness too. Do you know what it's like when you're not where you used to be, but you're not where God says you believe that you're going to be and you're in that space between and it feels like chaos and it feels messy and it feels confusing and there's no order and it's not making sense. You're in that space between. So before we go any further, I just want us to take a breath right now and consider where's your wilderness? Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you feel like you're finally just coming out of it. Maybe it's, it's chaos in family or at work or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's where the chaos is and you're just desperate for, for God to bring order here. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it feels like your prayers are just hitting a ceiling and you're like, God, do you care? You can't, this is unfixable. Or, or when, when will the next season come? Or why would you let this happen? I'm praying that God speaks to you today. Sometimes it's in the wilderness when the loud voices of culture are muted that you can actually hear from God. And for all of us, there's a sense in which we have some experience with God and yet we know that there's this new experience that's coming, that, that, that Jesus is coming back, that there's some kind of, some kind of heaven, there's, some, there's something else that's still to come and we're in the in-between. And so John the Baptist in these next couple of verses tells us what to do in the in-between, in the wilderness. He says this, he says, the Bible says that Luke, that Luke says that John went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now imagine if that was your job. Imagine if that was your one gig. You got to go around in, in terrible places that it's hard to get around and you're just eating like wild honey and bugs and things because you're in the wilderness uh, and, and your message to people is you're far from God. Um, come down to the water in your clothes and let me dunk you uh, because of your sin, because of your separation. And that's what he did for a long time. That was his message. You're far from God. You need to be baptized and repent, which repent means to turn around. And then this is interesting. A few verses later, the Bible says that John is saying, I baptize you with water to the people, but one is coming who is more powerful than I, 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In essence, saying, right now is the preparation time. He's coming. He's coming, and he's going to baptize you with spirit, and there's going to be a spark, and there's going to be fire, and there's going to be a realization of something and a newness of something. Right now is when you prepare. So come on, let me, let me baptize you, which means let me immerse you. Let me immerse you in this water, and it's going to be like a new start for you. Which brings us to another question. What are you immersed in? What are you immersing yourself in? If John was saying, hey, prepare, because Jesus is right around the corner. He's like here, and he's doing something, and he wants you, and there's going to be a spirit, and there's going to be fire, and there's going to be newness, and there's going to be the next thing. Right now, prepare if you're in the wilderness. Come on, let me immerse you. Let's do this thing. Let's have a a new start. What are you immersed in? Or just people, let, let's just play. What, people in our culture, what, what do they immerse themselves in typically? You can, you can shout a couple of things out. What do you think? Work, immersed in work. House cleaning. Good for you. <laughs> immersed in the chores and the tasks and the things that need to be done. Immersed, I'm immersed in What? What's that? Kids. Sports, television, entertainment, social media, right? We immerse ourselves in things like that. And to give you a picture of immersion, you have to go back to your Woodstock days or to your uh, Wikipedia version of Woodstock and imagine people in tie-dye shirts. When they took that white shirt, it used to be white, they dip it in a dye and they leave it there for a certain period of time. And as the shirt is in the dye, it literally soaks in the properties of the dye until it becomes their color color. And then the shirt is never the same again. You can wash it and maybe it'll fade a little bit, but it is a new color. It is a new kind of shirt. It has been soaked in and it has taken on the properties of the thing in which you introduced it to. What are you immersing yourself in? Because you are taking on the properties of something. When I was in high school, I, uh, I took Spanish class. I took, uh, I took three years of Spanish. Well, it was like, you know, Spanish one, Spanish two, Spanish. It wasn't the same class three years. I went in, <laughs> I progressed into three Spanish classes. So over the course of that time, I studied Spanish for probably a sum total of about 45 minutes a weekday uh, when I was in that class, maybe like 10 minutes of of homework and preparation, Uh, but that was my Spanish experience. And even though in my mind I wanted to know Spanish, there was a disconnect for me between what it took to really understand and learn Spanish and what I did. I let the classroom, the books that I didn't understand, the teacher that I thought was a wacko, to like get in the way of my complete understanding of Spanish. Whereas my wife, Hillary, she also studied Spanish, but when she studied it in classrooms, then in college, she made a decision to take a semester abroad and go to Spain. And so she went to Spain, and her knowledge that was about like at a C level in the classroom went to here, 
when she got to Spain, and she became fluent in Spanish because she immersed herself in it. I dabbled and kind of wanted to know Spanish. Hillary immersed herself in Spanish. And that would be John's message to you today. Are you in an in-between season? Are you in a wilderness? Are you somewhere here and you're not yet there? What are you doing in the here? What are you immersing yourself in? How are you preparing? And here's the next verse. Here's another way that John would say it to you. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So from the book of Isaiah, prophesied hundreds of years earlier, there's this word that John's going to come and he's going to be a voice calling in the wilderness and he's going to say, prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming, he's near, make straight paths from him, for him. What does that mean? That God's going to trip and fall if the paths aren't straight? That, that God is prone to having equilibrium, equilibrium problems and he needs straight paths? No, it means you follow John's example who was making a path between God and the people. And his message to you hundreds of years ago that's still relevant to this very moment is do the same thing. You are making a path between God and somebody else. God doesn't need you to, but you get to. That they are here and God is right here. And they will look at you and through you and along the path that you're creating to their creator, God. Have you ever tried to follow somebody in a car that didn't care that you were trying to follow them? I did it last week. And it can be really frustrating because I don't know where the place is. And yes, there's Google Maps. I get it. But I didn't write it down. And I'm just following them because it's not that far away. But they either completely have no clue what to do with someone who's following them by car or they hate me because they are <laughs> like bobbing and weaving and the light turns yellow and they gun it. And it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. Don't you understand? I'm following you here. And people are following you. Kids, coworkers, family, friends, they're following you. And they want to see what it looks like to encounter this God. God doesn't need your straight paths, and he can fix it when they get crooked. But, but what a privilege to be someone who creates a path between a person and their God. Because he's near. You get to. And that doesn't mean that you have to feel like you have to convert somebody or that you have to save somebody or that you have to evangelize somebody if that's a word that's a stumbling block for you. That's not what... Create a path. God will change lives and change hearts and make himself known to people. You create the path. We create the path by having our lives immersed in him, showing them the way to this God. And then verse 5 says this, Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill 
made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. In other words, despite the fact that sometimes our paths and our ways are crooked, God makes a way. God makes a way. Where there are valleys, they'll be filled in. God will make a way. Where there are mountains and hills and roadblocks, God will bring them low because God makes a way. Where there is difficulty and paths are crooked, even when it's your fault, God makes a way. And when the paths are rough and ugly and painful and hurtful, God makes a way. Remember the book, The Shack? In it, it's a fascinating book. In the, in, in the shack, someone asks the question, do all roads lead to God? And the answer is brilliant. He says, no, all roads don't lead to God, but God will take any road to get to you. God has been making a way and is still making ways for you and for everybody you know to get to him. Look at this last verse. It says, all people, the last part of verse six, and all people will see God's salvation. And all people will see God's salvation. All people at some point will be exposed to it. We'll see. This is the creator God, and he's made a way to me. And I don't want to live in this rebellious way on my own. What I actually want is connection and relationship with the God who created me. All these kinds of other things have gotten in my way and tainted my view. But of course this is what I want. This is the God of the universe who made me and he has made a way from himself to me. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus began this recreation process with a voice in that wilderness. And he is still recreating today. He is still making things new today. And we get to play a role in creating a path between people and their God so that they can be new creations too, so that he can continue to speak and draw people to himself because that's his desire. Look at this last verse from 2 Peter. It says, God isn't late with his promise as some measure lateness, He is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Friends, the Bible is about then. And there were prophecies from Isaiah and fulfilled in John the Baptist and fulfilled in Jesus. And those were real things that really happened. And the Bible is also about now. When when you read the Bible, it's about them and there's reality of the things and the context of the things that we're playing out and it's about us. It's about there and it's about here. And there are voices and there are influences and there's distraction and there's loudness and there's a culture that's, that's noisy and going in one direction And there's a quiet, humble 
revolution that's beginning in the wildernesses, the wilderness of your life, the wilderness of today, the wilderness of the in-between. And I believe that God has a word for you if you're listening to say you have a role to play. Immerse yourself in me because people are watching you and you get to create a path from someone to me. You get to play that part. John the Baptist then, but his word is to you today. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths because he is near and he is here and people are watching and you have a part to play. This is the ongoing revolution that's been every bit as true in your life as in the lives of those people in those wildernesses that got dunked in that water in their clothes. It's the same revolution that's on today. It's the same thing that you get to participate in. It's the same thing that you get to invite others into. And as we move in these next 30 plus days toward Easter, I pray that you begin to see this in a new way. Not as some just historical thing, although it's historical, but in something that is very real in this moment right now. The question is, can you hear them? Are you listening? Will you immerse yourself in him so that you can be used by him in his ongoing revolution. Jesus, continue to speak to us. Continue to show us. Continue to lead us and convict us and invite us into your bigger story, God. Because I pray that you would use us to continue to spark the revolution that you are doing around us in the lives of other people, in our own homes, in our own workplaces, with our families and with our friends, as we go from this place into restaurants or into neighborhoods, that we would be about the revolution that you have began and that you are still carrying out in and through us. In Jesus' name.